and welcome to Know Your True Self, a show dedicated to raising the consciousness of humanity. Today, I welcome Rachel Harris, who is an author and psychologist who has been in private practice for 40 years. She also spent 10 years in an academic research department where she published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals and received a National Institutes of Health New Investigators Award. She is the author of Listening to Ayahuasca, and today we'll be talking about her new book, Swimming in Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground. Let's get started. Hey, Rachel, welcome to Know Your True Self. I am so grateful to have you as a guest today. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about your journey within psychology, the psychedelic movement, and what brought you here today and sharing this beautiful book with us, Swimming in the Sacred. Thanks so much. Well, let me just say that the roots of psychedelic medicine point back thousands and thousands of years from indigenous cultures and from Greece, where at Eleusis, that, you know, it was used as a preparation for death and dying, and it was an initiation into a mystery cult. So the use goes back centuries. These are the cultures, I mean, certainly even the current indigenous cultures use these medicines for healing and for spiritual development, sometimes for hunting, sometimes for witchcraft. It's true. Let's acknowledge that. But they have a place that they hold these medicines in their culture. We have outlawed them for half a century, and now we're bringing them back into the mainstream cultures. And so far, we're holding them as a medical treatment. And even though that medical treatment is done with great respect in a sacred way, we have to admit that our culture doesn't know really how to hold, find a place for these entheogens which means the God within, we don't know how to do that in a really purely sacred way. And so we're a young culture struggling with these powerful substances and hopefully learning from the medicines how to hold them. And in the book, Swimming in the Sacred, I interviewed women who have been working with these entheogens. My research criteria was at least 20 years but most of them have been working with them 30, 40, 50 years. And they really know the most in our Western culture about how to use these medicines. And where did these women get their training? Because some of them have shamanic backgrounds, correct? Then... A few, just a few. I mean, and that's really interesting because one of them trained with Southeast Asia shamans. So that's a whole different perspective. And then another one trained with a Shibipo, Peruvian shaman. We're kind of more accustomed to that. That's working with ayahuasca. And another woman herself who was Peruvian by birth uh, has trained with a number of different shaman in different medicines. But the rest trained underground. Well, you know what? It wasn't even underground in the 60s. They trained in the 60s. And, and these medicines were not underground until Nixon outlawed them in the early 70s. And what do you think about the training or apprenticeship that has gone on within the psychedelic underground in comparison to some of the clinical training that goes on today in becoming a psychedelic guide? Well, you know, it's a good question because we've got now a whole cohort of psychedelic therapists, and they've been trained online with maybe one experience or a Sandgroff breathwork workshop. So that's really minimal 
experience with the medicines. And many of them, unless they're working in a FDA-approved research study at a university, most of them are working in ketamine clinics, and they're called psychedelic therapists. Well, ketamine isn't a psychedelic. It's a dissociative, and it's addictive. And I'm beginning to hear about problems with ketamine. I mean, one therapist I know her client was mail ordering ketamine. So he'd had a, a Zoom interview with a physician who then prescribed it. And he was prescribed ketamine that was supposed to last for a month. And he took it all in one day because he wanted to speed up the process. Right. Well, you know, he went right to the emergency room. So there are a number of problems with the system we have going so far. And what you'll hear is the theme through our conversation is that the women I interviewed did a lot of, most of their own work using the medicines. And they worked with therapists and they worked with their own guides. And they worked for many years before they started serving the medicines to other people, as they say. So that's not happening these days. Right. So the psychedelic underground after Nixon, this is a legal activity. How did you find these women and how have they kept their practices going? Yeah, well, they didn't talk to anybody. That's how they kept, they were very, <laughs> they had a valid silence and they were very good at it. After the listening to ayahuasca book came out, that kind of opened doors for me. People had read it. They kind of knew who I was. I had been in some of these same situations that these women were in, in the late 1960s. I was in California. I was at Esalen where these medicines were readily available and I was in some of the same situations. I mean, some of us even knew the same people. One woman I went to interview recognized me when I got out of the car, recognized her too. I'd never really met her, but she was familiar to me. So I'd been in those places, but these women studied the medicines. They found people to apprentice with. I went to graduate school. I think these women are, I call them spiritual priestesses spiritual warriors. I was a graduate student. <laughs> you know, I read and I write and I don't have their kind of stamina and strength and their deep sense of knowing that they know in their bones what they're doing. I don't have that kind of certainty and their faith in the process and, and their courage to do the level of experiential training that they went through. So I have utmost regard for them. Because I know in the book, I was reading one of the stories, and I can't remember if it was about Ariel or Kendra, but it had to do with you doing an interview. And as you're collecting information, the way that they were giving it to you, it wasn't typical space and time as we know it. What type of world do these shaman women or, or spiritual guides live in between <laughs> the seen and unseen? They're very fluid in that movement. And the psychological variable that we have to measure that is, let me get this right, it's the intelligent absorption scale. And it's a measure of hypnotic sensibility. And it's the ease with which someone can change a state of consciousness. So to move from consensus reality to a hypnotized state, that's a shift in consciousness. And these women are very good at that. And they've been good at it since they were children. So they had unusual dreams. They had unusual experiences. 
Many of them had mystical experiences, children. So they were open to these kinds of inner shifts. And I'm a little bit like this myself. So I'm sort of similar to them. And one of my hypotheses as a psychologist is as we learn more about these medicines, we will learn more about how to manage the dose. And it's not by weight. And it's really by the person's ability to shift states of consciousness. The more fluid they are, the better they are, the higher the absorption scale, the less medicine they need. Now, it could be argued that, you know, psychedelic medicine is still dominated by male figures, but you bring up oh, a very, it could be argued for sure. <laughs> a very yeah. gracious point in the book about why one would want to have a woman as a psychedelic guide because of the emotional quotient, their vibration. Tell us why women need to be more prominent or elevated within this field. Well, you know, I say these women are silenced. They're kind of silenced in three ways. First of all, because they're women, you know, we know about that. And they're older women, so they're invisible and they're silent. And they're working illegally. So it's very hard for them to stand up at a conference and talk about their clinical experiences. They can't admit to the crime they're committing. So they don't have a voice in the community. Now, as a, you know, since I'm trained in research and psychotherapy, one of the rules in research is that you interview, if you're developing a research study, you interview experts in that area. So the academic research teams know some of these women. I know they know them. They could have spent time with them and asked them questions, and it would have helped them in the development of their research protocols and what questions to ask. And I did a research study that was published in Journal of Psychoactive Drugs in 2012. And I asked one of these women who I knew back then, even before I did this book, I said, what questions should I ask? And she said, ask the people if they have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. It was the study of ayahuasca use. And I thought, well, I wouldn't have thought to ask that. And I basically did exactly as she told me to do. I asked, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca? How do you communicate? What does she say to you? Those kinds of questions that opened a whole other conversation. Well, you know, it sounds like a crazy question. I'm asking about an unseen spirit. This is not part of our normal Western culture. Three quarters of the subjects had an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. I got this information because I asked one of the women elders, the research teams, they should use these women as consultants. <laughs> in terms of guided psychedelic experiences, you mentioned in the book somatic sensing and other different types of chanting that sometimes accompany a guided psychedelic experience. like. What can one expect from a spiritual practitioner and what can one expect from a clinical practitioner? Well, all the medicines are different, so they're used in different ways. Let me say one thing in response, and that is that I am hearing more and more people doing a journey home alone. And I want to say, please don't do that. You have no emergency backup if you take one of these medicines and you're home alone. Are you going to call 911 
and basically report yourself, have an ambulance come and get you, have cops come and get you. You know, you, there should always be someone with you who is sober and ready to deal with any emergencies. And emergencies happen. I, I talked to someone the other day who qualified for a treatment at Johns Hopkins for long-term COVID. And she said she had a full-blown panic attack during the first journey. And I asked her, how long did that last? She said an hour. Wow. Well, if you're home alone with an hour long panic attack, that's a pretty scary thought. And even if you're there with someone who doesn't really know the territory or how to help you, that's also a scary thought. So you wanna be very careful that you're with someone. So in the late sixties, when I was in California and I took psychedelics, I did it, I was serious spiritually, and I did them in nature. When I started this interviewing these women, I realized I had never done the protocol that's used in all the studies where you have eye shades and earphones and you're really turned inward. I had had 15 years of working with ayahuasca at the time I started this book, but that's with a shaman, an indigenous shaman who sings Icaros. And that's the chanting I think you were referring to. And so that's someone who is trained to channel a healing energy through the Icaros and target different parts of the person's energy. So that's a very specific skill that takes six or seven years to master. Well, to begin to be able to use it really. So when I realized I'd never done the protocol, I immediately asked one of these women elders to do a journey with me and we did MDMA. And it was very different from being out, you know, in, in California, I was out on a mountain ridge. I mean, it was gorgeous, <laughs> right. beautiful. Now I'm under a blanket, you know, with eye shades on. And it's a completely different experience. And it's also a different experience if the person who is the guide is also a therapist. And I missed the therapy part, even though, of course, I'm an experienced therapist. And I was in therapy also at the time, but there's something that happens when the person available to you is the therapist. And uh, that's, it's just a little bit different. And we're still learning different ways of using these medicines. When should the guide be a therapist? When can they be a shaman? When can they be a sitter? You know, we're learning all different ways, but I have to come out and say, I'm against doing it alone. I'm against doing it with somebody on Zoom who's not really there, as if that's going to help you. I think you should have someone alive next to you. Someone who's managing the music is very important. Right. So, you know, different types of therapies, obviously post-traumatic stress disorder, overcoming traumas. What is psychedelic medicine being used for? And then where are the gaps? When I read oh, your book yeah. and I hear about oh, boy. <laughs> it becoming a way of life and not a treatment, how do we bridge these two worlds? Yeah, they are very different worlds. And the research is really just beginning. It's We have a couple of decades of research where we're just beginning to look at what diagnoses, which medicines are best for which diagnoses. We don't know yet. Everybody talks about integration. We don't really know what that means. Everybody's talking about something different. Different therapists are using different approaches to therapy in what they call integration. But the way the medicines are used underground, 
is they're used over a lifetime. It's not for a specific treatment, not to reduce symptoms. The medicine is kind of a, an accelerant and a guide for an unfolding spiritual life. So, you know, one example I have is Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD. He died at the age of 102, and his uh, last LSD trip was at the age of 97. So I, I have this to look forward to in a couple of years. <laughs> and then somebody told me he did an acid trip once a year. And that's often the way these medicines are used in a living situation so that people are kind of guided by this experience throughout their whole life. And so the way the medicines worked on me when I was in my early 20s is very different from how they work on me now. I mean, most of my journeys are about death and dying at this point. And even though I'm healthy, I'm at the age where that's one of the next big initiations. You know, I didn't think about death and dying when I was in my early 20s, but now it seems to be a hot dinner time topic <laughs> when right, I have dinner right. parties. <laughs> we're all talking about this age is we're all talking about death and dying. So the medicines are used very differently at different stages. In the academic research world, it's controlled by medical doctors. It's very specific for reduction of symptoms. Do you think we're getting to a place where with psychedelic medicine starting to become more mainstream in traditional medical fields that the exploration of the spiritual development or community will begin to grow and these elders can share their wisdom before it's too late? You know, the research is just beginning. I mean, and it's very exciting research. The, the results are great. People are being helped to have treatment-resistant depression or PTSD. It's really miraculous for many, many people. I mean, you know, people facing terminal cancer and their own mortality, and they come alive and can use their time in, in a much more open, um, relational way. These are many miracles that are happening all the time in the research studies. And then underground, and the underground is growing not everybody's an elder in the underground. I was at the MAPS conference in June and everybody I met told me that they were an underground guide. <laughs> Some of them were like 21 years old. So, <laughs> But, you know, these medicines are being used more. We're a young culture. We don't know how to preserve the sacred initiation that these medicines offer us. Right. So there's research. There's entrepreneurs trying to make money on the whole deal. Come on, you know, this is a big deal. There's people really wanting to make big money. Big Pharma wants it, yeah. Big Pharma, yeah. And then there's a lot of uh, what I would say is irresponsible use where I just, I want to hope for the best. And then there's uh, MDMA is not exactly a psychedelic. Ketamine is clearly not a psychedelic. So there's a, what's being called psychedelic is sort of a broader tent. So we have a lot to learn is really my position on what's happening. One of my favorite sentences in my book is inflation is alive and well in the psychedelic community, <laughs> you know, ego inflation. And I think if we take the position of being students of these entheogens, that's really the antidote to that kind of ego inflation. We can learn about them in medical ways. We can learn about them in sacred ways. We have a lot to learn. Beautiful, beautiful, well said. Well, your book's absolutely phenomenal. 
Where can people get it? Why should they read it? And what do you hope they get out of it? I always hope that whatever I write is helpful. I mean, I'm sort of a, a compulsive therapist. I want to be helpful. I think if they have any interest in psychedelics, this book presents a whole other perspective. And of course, you can pick up the book anywhere books are sold. And the website is Swimming in the Sacred, and there are connections to Amazon and other websites where you can buy it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you enlightening us more about the psychedelic community, where it was, where it's going, and your role within it is absolutely phenomenal. I applaud all of your efforts. Thank you for being such a phenomenal guest. <laughs> Thank you so much. 